Welcome to Success in Medicine. I'm Dr. Samir Desai. On this episode of the podcast, I'm excited to have Sholi Nicholson on the show. Sholi is a graduate of Harvard and is now on his way to medical school. He was fortunate to receive multiple acceptance offers from some of our nation's top medical schools. And he recently heard the news that he's been waiting for. He got into Harvard Medical School. As you would expect, Sholi has performed at a high level inside and outside the classroom. But in terms of academics, it took time for Sholi to develop the strategies needed for success. And he's been sharing these strategies on his website, ambitiousstudent.com, so that others can benefit from what he's learned. I asked Sholi to be our guest today so that we can hear more about his journey to medical school. This will be a two-part series in which we focus on academics. You'll learn some very specific strategies that you can begin implementing today to boost your GPA and achieve your desired MCAT score. Sholi, thank you for joining us on today's episode. Dr. Desai, thank you for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Well, we are excited to have you. And first, I just want to say congratulations to you. At the time of this recording, you had been accepted to six medical schools. That is quite an accomplishment. Yes, thank you. This cycle has gone really, really well. I can't say that I expected it to go this way, but I could say I am sleeping well at night having at least one. You know, once you get the first one, it's everything else is, is frosting. So I did apply. I applied to 21 schools and I attended 11 interviews. And so far, I've heard from seven schools, and I've gotten into six schools and waitlisted to one school. And still waiting to hear from a couple more coming in March. But it's really a fantastic feeling to be in this position. It's also really motivating because I feel like, you know, a lot of the experiences and shortcomings, especially that I've had in the past and had the opportunity to learn from, matter more now that they've kind of had positive results. And I'm excited. It motivates me and excites me even more to be able to share those things with other students. Definitely. And I do hope that you continue to get some more good news in the future. And the school that's at the top of your list, I hope that school comes knocking on your door and you get that offer you've been waiting for. <laughs> I hope so as well, Dr. Desai. I think I might want to mention as well, if you don't say this enough, that the medical school interview book was really incredibly helpful throughout this process. You know, sometimes it's great to hear something from someone else versus the person who wrote the book. I use, particularly, I used the book a couple months before even applying to my primary application. And it was helpful just to get an idea of what was important to look at even months before an interview. And then before an interview, it was, you know, the, the statistical foundation of it is really, really useful and really informative in the quotations you use. So the students, you know, think you're just Pubbing, if you're just saying positive things about this book because you wrote it, then please listen to me. <laughs> well, I, I thank you for that, Sholi, and your feedback. That does mean a lot to us. I mean, the reason we wrote this book is to help students overcome the challenges of the medical school interview process, and it is so very, very difficult, and it is the most important thing in this uh, whole process. And so thank you for sharing that with me. Of course. Now I want to start, Sholi, by just asking you to tell us a little bit about yourself. So I come from, actually I come from a lower socioeconomic status background. 
Neither of my parents attended college. My mom's from Japan. She actually never graduated high school in Japan. But throughout, you know, we have a close-knit family. And, you know, as time went on, they started to realize the importance of education. And while they may not have had the chance to make the most of that opportunity, they knew that they wanted me to understand how important education was and for me to make the most of it. I remember in particular, when I was younger, I believe it was in grade school or even a few years before grade school, one thing my dad said to me, I had this coloring assignment that I brought home for homework. And it was a, the image was of, you know, a farm coloring, you know, we had to color the cow and color the grass and the barn. And I remember being really kind of excited about finishing this assignment and showing my dad how well I colored the picture. And he said, he asked me, you know, uh, why didn't you color in the line? And that's one of my first memories of me realizing that, you know, school is not just something you go and do because that's the way life works. It's actually, from a young age, I, I kind of, you know, figured that school is something you want to do well in. It's something you want to try and do the best that you can in, and figuratively, figuratively color in the lines, no matter what grade we're in. And so, you know, that, that was a strong foundation for me growing up. I started to value school and academics and, and great grades, not, not necessarily for getting into a great graduate school or becoming, a, or years before I even had the goal of becoming a doctor. There was an implicit motivation for me to do the best that I could in the academics and in school. I kind of liken it to if, you know, if we, we talk about Tom Brady, I'm, I'm in Boston now, I'm sorry if there are any Pats fans listening, but you know, the, the Super Bowl to Tom Brady is like a 4.0 to me growing up. So it was really important. Well, you learned some very, very important things at an early age. And I want to stay in your younger years here. And, and I want to talk about the goals that you were setting for yourself at the age of 15. And it's a goal that so many 15-year-olds really aspire to achieve. And that goal is to earn straight A's. And you set that goal, but you were not able to achieve your goal in high school. What do you believe were the factors that held you back? I think it was a lot of things. You know, for one, I think it was my background that I came from. And although my parents valued education, the community I was in was also not a highly educated community, which meant the, the ways of thinking about particular ideas, the ways of experiencing the world around me, and also the way of the vocabulary that I was hearing every day is different from what you would ex what you would find in an academically rigorous environment. So I was very fortunate to get into Phillips Exeter Academy in Exeter, New Hampshire for high school. And I spent four years there and it was really, really difficult there. And I think that also has a lot to do with why I wasn't able to achieve straight A's. A couple specifics of why it was difficult there, my classmates were many, many levels above what, above me, frankly, in terms of their, their skills in writing, the amount of reading they had done in the past. So I, in English class, I was having discussions with classmates that already had published poems and, and short stories. Or, you know, I was having conversations in the dining hall with students that had been the top in their country in mathematics. And you can imagine how difficult it would be to be in the classroom with these students and to, you know, not coming from, a, from an academic background to, to get, to earn something that's A, that's worth an A, that has the value of an A. 
that compares to, to work that, to the work that they were doing. And I also really didn't know how to do school, frankly. You know, my approach to my academics was doing the best that I could. And what that meant was obviously handing in every assignment, going to class, but, and studying to make sure I study for tests. But, you know, there's so much more nuance and specifics to what those things mean and how to do those things well that I hadn't, I didn't know and I didn't learn till many, many years after of, of trial and error. So a lot of those things were making the 4.0 difficult and, and great grades difficult. My average GPA in, at Phil Sector was around a 3.6. But with that said, I was really motivated by the students around me, you know, and it was, it was a really incredible experience for me in particular to see other students that were minorities that were doing better than me as well, you know. I remember we would we would have chats all the time in the dining halls and in the dorms about grades and about aspirations and and you know my my friends would share with me the grades that they were getting and and I was just blown away you know how did you get an A minus in that course I remember staying up all night a few times to write my papers and only come only earning a B or you know how did you how did you do so well in geometry and I was motivated by seeing that if other students could do it I felt that I could do it too, and it was something that I was capable of doing. So being in that environment then, which was so intellectually stimulating, seems like it was an inspiring thing for you. Yes, it was very, very inspiring. And so you, you know, moved forward with your goal, you know, to earn straight A's, but that 4.0 did prove to be elusive in high school. But even though it was elusive, you, you never lost the drive to earn better grades. And, and one thing that you had told me is that you made it a habit every semester to reflect on what you were doing well and also ask yourself what you could improve. So what were some of the things that you learned through this process? You know, as I mentioned, just putting the hard work in turned out to be not enough. And it took about a year or a year and a half or so for me to realize it's it's not a matter of how hard I was working, how hard I was studying uh, for me to improve my grades. And I needed to actually take a closer look at what I was doing in these classes and what what were the bottlenecks or what were the, the limiting steps that were keeping me from doing really well. And so a couple things I noticed was, well, one foundational thing that I learned was that Getting great grades in class, no matter what class it is, is kind of like a three, it's a three-step process and it's linear. So, you know, the first idea is that I needed to understand the material and I needed to understand the concepts thoroughly. Because when I understood the concepts thoroughly, I could do step two, which was to recall those concepts and to add nuance to those concepts and to engage with those ideas and concepts. And then after step two, if I had that ability to really kind of digest the material and not just understand it, but to dive deep into it, then I could easily replicate replicate uh, the material on the questions, on exams, and on tests, and on quizzes, and on homework assignments, and in class. And that that process is really, really fundamental and really important to getting great grades, because if there's... You know, if there's a missing step, it's hard to reach the end goal of the strong grade of replicating it on an exam. And so 
with that new understanding, I made sure that I, re I realized that I had to I had to make sure I knew the material in class. I remember in physics, I took physics as a freshman. Uh, they offered it to freshmen, and, and I wanted to try something different. And it was way above what I was expecting, and, and academically, it was very difficult. And, and in hindsight, a couple years after that, I realized that, you know, because the, I didn't have a strong familiarity with mathematics of physics, and so I, ha I had a lot of difficulty really understanding those concepts, and that's why I couldn't really engage in class, and that's why I couldn't reproduce that information on the exam. Another thing that I learned in, in reflecting back on my semesters was the importance of checking answers on exams. I always made minor mistakes on math quizzes, and, and I would see you know, a week after or two weeks after when I picked up my, my quiz again just to skim over it that, okay, wow, here's five points that I could have gotten back had I not made that small mistake. And once I noticed that, I started checking my answers, and I also started going back to my teachers after seeing how they graded it to get more points back. You know, I could, I noticed that, okay, they took off a point here, but I actually, that wasn't necessarily a mistake because of this, this, and this. And that was another way that I learned that I could slowly make minor adjustments to boost my GPA. I learned about time management and energy management, using resources like other books, internet, and my classmates that were, you know, <laughs> Because they were so much smarter than me, I could use them as a resource to help me do better as well. And, and things like that. And, and I guess one story I have, too, I learned about the importance of how you present yourself in class. And we can get into this in more detail later on. But I remember in particular, you know, at Exeter, sometimes you get course evaluations from your professors and your teachers. That, and they write up a short paragraph about, you know, how your performance was that semester. And I was... I took a chemistry course, and I still remember his name. His name was Dr. Ward. He was a really phenomenal teacher, and he inspired me to continue to study science. And I, I thought I would major in chemistry in college, but that's a totally different story once I had my first exam. But so I read his course evaluation one semester, and he said, in the evaluation, he said, you know, Sholey is a, a wonderful student to have in class. During class, I can see by the way he looks at me while I'm talking over the concepts and his body posture, that he is really thinking deeply about what we're, we're discussing, and he really has a motivation to learn. And that was something I was doing, I didn't realize I was doing, because my goal was just to learn and to get the best grade that I could, but seeing that from the teacher's perspective helped me realize that how I presented myself and my participation in class was also important to not just how I learned, but to how um, how my teacher saw me and ultimately the outcome of my grade in that class as well. So although you were striving for that 4.0 and it remained elusive to you during high school, you were doing plenty right because you did get into college and not just any college, you got into Harvard. And I want to just shift gears a little bit and talk a little bit about Harvard and what it was like being a student there. Sure, yes. I could talk all day about my experience, my student experience there. I, I would first like to make sure I say that, you know, I did, yes, I did, although I didn't get a 4.0 in high school, I did end up doing well enough academically to get into Harvard, but my grades, you know, did not compare to other students who were accepted into Harvard. You know, I, I, most students who are accepted into Harvard are really, really, have really perfect transcripts. 
and SAT scores. A lot of students that got get into Harvard had probably 150% of my SAT score. And I, I think I would, I do attribute me getting into, you know, my focus on academics and trying to improve and trying to do well and having a pretty good GPA. But I think a lot of more of it comes from, you know, trying to, my parents tried to teach me to make sure I had integrity and to make sure I developed good relationships with other people and I was kind, I was appreciative and I was honest and I was genuine and I always, I was humble and could learn from other people. And I think those things are just as important to grades and those things kind of came out in my recommendations and in my college counselors, you know, discussions with admissions committees and, and so on and so forth. So I don't want to take that away from the people, my mentors and other people who taught me. So I just want to mention that. And that's great that that you brought that up because, you know, for our listeners out there, sometimes we focus so much and hear so much about the academic side that we don't give enough attention or emphasis to everything else that's so very, very important. And you're really referring to the non-cognitive side, you know, those qualities that we possess and how others view those. And you're really speaking to some things that are very, very important to both your professional career and, and just life in general, right? Yes. Yes, I agree entirely. And, you know, one of the articles I'm, I'm particularly proud of, even though, you know, it hasn't gotten incredible amount of traffic, but I think it's really important is that is, is the article titled, In Your Pursuit of Goals, Don't ne- Neglect Integrity. And it's, it's really, you know, one thing I've learned from my experience and I've seen other people in, in, in Harvard do as well is that, you know, we can be so ambitious and want to do so much in our life and get great grades and get land the job and get into medical school that it, we almost can become selfish in a way and start to belittle the accomplishments of others for, for our own success or treat others as, as someone that might slow, as people who might slow down our success. And we have to always remember that it's just as important, like you mentioned, it's just as important to have those, the non-cognitive side and the caring and the compassion and the, the helping others. And that'll be just as effective, I think, for our admissions and our success as well. And so I, I would love to hear more about your your time at Harvard. What was it like being a student there? I graduated in 2016, and the biggest word that kind of pops into my mind when I think back to my experience as an undergrad at Harvard is resources. For one, financially, Harvard has a lot of resources. And I was really fortunate to make the most of those resources to, you know, I was able to study abroad and Hakodate, Japan, which is northern Japan, and it's a really interesting place. It's a port city, and I stayed with a host family there, and I had a, a really a lot of life-changing experiences there, and just being exposed to a culture that's so different, I learned a lot from as well, and Harvard, the resources at Harvard paid for the travel there and offered some stipend as well. Another opportunity I had from the resources at Harvard was to work in, in Kobe, Japan. And not only did I get to work there and have the flight covered in lodging, but I also was connected to a carpentry tools museum there in Kobe, which kind of connects to my medical interests. And I think had I not been, had I not been fortunate to attend Harvard, I don't think I would have even been exposed to something as niche as carpentry, traditional Japanese carpentry tools museum in Kobe, Japan. 
my, my classmates and professors and the extracurriculars that I took part in were, were resources as well. Um, you know, just like in high school, I was surrounded by all-star classmates that had, you know, done cancer research and made developments in that field or had created an app that's <clears throat> had gone viral or had saved people from homelessness and, and had done a, a number of really, really impressive and phenomenal pursuits and were, were, and academics were such a small and easy part of their life. So I was around students like this with a diversity of interests and a diversity of abilities and experiences. And the professors, you know, leading scholars from around the world and around the country in different fields. And I had access to their, to, to their expertise and the way they thought about things and the way they did things and, and their, the things they wanted to teach us as students who would go on to try and impact the world in some way extracurriculars I had the opportunity to volunteer at the Harvard Square homeless shelter and that experience even led to me starting my own small nonprofit organization to help the homeless in Cambridge and I think had I not had the resources at Harvard and the mentorship and the exposure that I had from volunteering I wouldn't have had that experience as of starting my own philanthropic uh, opportunity so here you are at Harvard with so many opportunities to do exciting things outside of the classroom, yet you still have that same goal since the age of 15. You want to get straight A's, and you're at Harvard, but semester after semester, you find yourself falling a bit short. And it wasn't because of a lack of effort, right? Absolutely not. <laughs> One thing that I wanted to make sure I could tell myself was that after every semester in hindsight that I knew I gave, I did everything I could to get the best grades that I could. And I can honestly say after graduating that every semester besides senior spring, because that's when I, I had a bad case of senioritis and lost most of my motivation to continue to give my 100% to academics. But every semester outside of that, I really challenged myself and said, you know, you have to make sure you give your all. And when you look back, make sure you can say that you gave 100, more than 100. You gave your best to get the best grades that you could. And there's a downside to that as well. So with these resources around me, I was so fortunate to attend Harvard. I didn't, I feel like outside of my experiences traveling and speaking with professors and helping others, I didn't have a full college experience, what's, what's commonly thought of as a college experience. And that was because I was a pre-medical student, I, I prioritized my grades and I was studying all the time. And it was, sometimes it got to the point where it was unhealthy. You know, I remember I had some months where, literally months where I just did nothing but sleep, eat, study, and use the bathroom. <laughs> and that meant weekends as well that can add up that adds up to burnout it did get me really you know I did really well academically so it did pay off and I did get the grades that I was shooting for although the the 4.0 still remained elusive it was not healthy I remember Thanksgiving break Thanksgiving break always fell around the Harvard Yale game which is a big rivalry football game and we, then we'd have a break and then we'd also have an exam or two after Thanksgiving break so the timing of it was not conducive for, to me making the most of my vacation. So I always 
use Thanksgiving break to study a lot. And in particular, one semester when I was taking organic chemistry and human anatomy and physiology, I remember spending the entire Thanksgiving break just studying every single day from morning till night. You know, every now and then I'd come downstairs, eat a quick meal and, you know, have a short conversation with my parents and go right back upstairs to studying. So it wasn't it wasn't the most healthy experience, to say the least. You know, and I'm, I'm so glad that you are giving us an idea of, of what that was like, because burnout is such an important issue. We're, we're talking a lot about that in medicine these days. We know through our research that significant percentage of medical students and residents and established physicians are really suffering from burnout. So these things that you are bringing forth are continue to be very important topics, not just in college, but throughout the entire medical career. But that is a, a topic for another day. But it's, it is something that I think, you know, our listeners want to think about because it is so easy to get into that, right? Yes. And a lot of times when we, we put so much work into it, we don't really realize when we're being drained until it might be too late. Definitely. And I, I, I want to get back to your goal because in your senior year, you did it. You got all A's. And not only did you get all A's, you took the MCAT and scored at a very high level, achieving 85th percentile on the exam. And I want to tell the listeners that you know you were able to achieve this because all along the way, you were identifying effective strategies. And one of the strategies that I want to talk to you about, one particular strategy that I think is really important, is what you call plan your day the night before. Can you tell us more about that? Sure, yes. So planning your day the night before, essentially, it's, it's, that's pretty much what it is. You know, it's a simple concept of making sure you know what, how the next day is going to go, what time you're going to wake up, what what you're going to do throughout the day, the tasks you're going to do, including the meals, and including things like call your mom or have fun having lunch with your friend. And that kind of, the idea kind of came from my experience of not being able to sleep well because I always had different tasks on my mind and it takes kind of, it keeps you up. It, at least it kept me up thinking about the tasks that I had to do the next day or, or a week later. And also just realizing that I wasn't being very productive. Some days, some days I would wake up really late and regret it the rest of the day. Other times I was spending a lot of time doing things that I knew would only take, you know, 30 minutes to an hour maximum if I was making the most of my day, if I had planned my day to where I would do it when I was focused or I had just eaten a meal and, th and so on and so forth. So, that's where the idea came from, and it grew into what's called taskless. And this is something that has really, really helped me in my academics. And just, I feel like it's made my life very, you know, it's helped me get more out of life and making the most of each day as well. Would you like, should I go into specifics? Definitely, because I believe that a lot of students are not in the habit of making these task lists. I work very closely with medical students and, and residents as a faculty member at the Baylor College of Medicine. And one of the questions that I get asked a lot is, 
how can I get everything that I have to do accomplished? And inevitably our conversation turns to, you know, what are you doing to keep track of everything? How are you staying organized? You know, are you making lists? Are you prioritizing the items on the list? And more often than not, I find that people aren't doing that. And it sounds like that's something that you discovered in college. Yes. And so I wanted to talk a little bit more about that and about the importance of staying organized. So beyond planning your day, what are some other actionable steps students can take to stay organized? Sure. So, well, I guess with, with planning your day, I think, and the organization component of it, I think it's important to be very specific about how you go about doing it. So in my case, you know, the way I stay organized is with the task list. And in particular, I make the list the night before and I write in exactly what time I'm going to wake up the next day. I make a list of the specific tasks that I want to do. And in any particular order, I write them down because I feel like it's, it's more important to be consistent with this activity, with this, this task of being organized than to just do it a couple times. And if I find that when I just jot down the things that I have to do as they come to my mind, it takes less energy to do it, and it's much easier to stick to at 10.30 p.m. before I go to bed. And throughout the day, I cross off these tasks as I go. And the things that I find that aren't necessary uh, throughout the day, I'll X out. Things I don't get done, I'll circle, and it's easy to, to see and, and add those to the next day. And I just make sure I try and stick to it every day. And I found that also doing this and staying organized in this way has also made me become very particular about what tasks I'm actually doing because we can also waste time writing down menial tasks that don't really contribute to our end goal so you know say it's around application time and you're one of your important things you want to get done by the end of this week or next week is to finish a primary application you know you could also waste a lot of time not being organized and writing down tasks that exhaust you so walk all the way to the grocery store and walk back home and then go to the stationery store and buy some pens and then make this phone call you know when you write it down you become particular about are these tasks lining up with our end goal and the ones that don't you don't even write down or you'll batch on a different day another thing i learned about staying organized particularly in college was one one observation that I had that a lot of my friends that were the best students that would get A's across the board and do really well in their science classes and write the best papers also had the neatest rooms, ironically. And, you know, as I thought about this more, as I probed them about what they were doing, it kind of aligned that, you know, they weren't just doing well academically. They, they weren't just organized with their academics, they were organized in their life and the way they went about doing things. You know, they were the type of students that had throw pillows on their couches and beds for, for aesthetics. Their desk was always neat. They always had nice pens that they liked to use. And, you know, specifically, if we go into the specifics, these really kind of contribute to doing well academically. Specifically, you know, having a study space that's Having a neat study space is conducive to sitting there a longer amount of time and to focusing. And, you know, with the neat study space comes the relaxing music, comes your favorite 
tea or coffee drink or stimulant it uh, and comes the the mental you know the dopamine release sitting down and saying okay this is the time i'm going to spend four hours and study organic chemistry and all that aligns and over time contributes to better grades additionally being organized in terms of having a binder for each class you know i remember i learned to have a binder for every class and then i i also had binder dividers that would separate the lectures from the quizzes that I got back, from the exams and from the assignments. And the way being organized in this way helped with my review and studying. So before an exam, I could take out the other exams and look specifically at what I did wrong or what I could improve, um, while other students would probably, who weren't very serious about it, would toss the exams or lose them um, or have them crumple in the backpack, which I did frequently in high school and my freshman year of college. Also, I guess another thing that, that's important to being organized is uh, having a designated time for, for yourself. And this also ties into uh, a little bit about the burnout that you mentioned. So, you know, being organized in terms of time management and also having managed your time to where you know you'll have time to read or you'll have your leisure time to work out, to exercise. Those are also important and important qualities of being organized, I believe. And lastly, one of the biggest things to being organized and the actionable things that students can do to improve their GPA is to plan their semesters in, in advance as well. So um, one component of it would be planning which classes to take. And I remember I used to make sure I had at least one class per semester that I knew I would do really well in and balance that out with a class that was very difficult and I'd need to spend more time studying it. And the other two I would either do the same or take two medium difficulty classes. And as you can imagine, a lot of research goes into really understanding these classes. Thankfully at Harvard there's something what's called Q scores and after every semester students rate their classes and statistically put in, you know, how many hours of homework they had and they leave comments about what was difficult in the course and their experience with the professor. And that was all compiled into a survey and I used these things. I spent hours and hours looking at these to really plan my semester and balance out what classes I was taking because I didn't want to overload myself and I wanted to be able to give the attention, effort and focus to classes that needed it most. And the other component of planning a semester was planning my studying. So before every semester when I was taking difficult courses, I would research the best way to study for that course. And I would also have backup strategies for when the course wasn't going so well with using the strategies that I planned to use, I had other ways that I would supplement my studying. I always had my books ordered weeks in advance before the course and that's the way I, I saved money on textbooks. And I bought, I purchased my studying materials, you know, books and pens and pencils in advance as well. That way, when day one came, I had already done the reading for the first class rather than had to wait another week or two for the books to arrive. And I had the proper note taking, notebooks and pens and pencils and, and things like that. Surely these are excellent points that you've brought up about planning and organization, things that we don't talk enough about. I think when we're talking about how to achieve better grades, we focus so much on 
what we're doing during the studying process and how we're answering questions on the exam in terms of test-taking skills. But these are also very, very important to this entire process. In our next episode of the Success in Medicine podcast, we'll continue our conversation with Sholi Nicholson. We'll go into other strategies and share more tips on how you can take your academics to the next level. Remember to visit Sholi's website, ambitiousstudent.com. And for more information on how we can help you reach your professional dreams in medicine, don't forget to visit us at thesuccessfulmatch.com. Until next time, I'm Dr. Samir Desai.